verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Yeah, if we're ready for chapter 20, we've kind of exceeded our uh, boundaries. Add a little bit there. There is an overall pattern to this. So remember that 13 to 19 was Jesus picking the 12 who were to be with him and then be sent out to preach. Now, there are some other groups that Jesus interacts with, and that's what we're going to see in this. And this is one of those examples of a story within a story that you get a lot of times in Mark. Now, there's a lot to say about all that, but notice 20 and 21 is Jesus' family and their reaction to Jesus. And that story is concluded starting in verse 31, as you see them actually arriving. And 31 to 35 sort of completes 20 and 21. Then 22 to 30 is the reaction of the enemies of Jesus to him. So you've really got the start of a story, then another story, and then we complete the first story. So let's read 20 to 30. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself, and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right. The situation that leads to his family's reaction is what? Crowds. Huge throngs around Jesus. And what was that causing? Yeah, he didn't even have time to eat. He was so pressured and occupied with these crowds that were coming. It was just overwhelming. And so Jesus' family hears about that. And what are they thinking? He's lost it. Yeah, he flipped. You know, he's just gone, you know, semi-fanatic. You know, I mean, he's not even taking care of himself. You know, and so what do they think they're going to do? Have to go take charge of him and yeah. take him away from what he's doing. Yeah. they got to protect him from himself. You know, they've got to, you know, uh, perhaps commit him for a while. Uh, perhaps not to a mental hospital, but maybe to go back home, get some uh, R&R, and, and kind of, you know, calm down a little bit. Uh, you know, get, get to taking care of himself again, and, and all of that. You know, isn't that interesting? That the people who theoretically would be the closest to Jesus don't understand him at all. You know, they should really underst- did not really understand at all what he was there for, what his mentality was, and uh, so they're out, you know, on a mission. So they they set out. That's kind of uh, where we're at there. Do you have some thoughts and comments on 20 and 21? Does that make you think then that Jesus' life up to the point that he began his public ministry was pretty normal just like everybody else's? It, is, then does that you know, lead to maybe some of these conclusions? I think that's a fair assumption. Not just from this, but from other information we've got. You know, when he goes back to his hometown, people seem disturbed that he wasn't normal anymore. He isn't just the carpenter in Mark 6. We know he was a carpenter's son, but evidently he did that same thing. And, and seemed like a normal enough person. So, yeah, I think, I think this is a change of life for him that, you know how families are. 
you know, they don't necessarily understand when you become really uh, passionate about some cause. And, you know, isn't that true in general? I mean, you know, families might have a hard time with, uh, you know, somebody in the family that, that, you know, becomes really dedicated to some sport and just, you know, is training hours every day, things like that. You know, that, that's a little weird. You know, they need, they need to balance out their life more. And certainly families have a hard time with people who come, become committed to the Lord. You know, and, and I mean, a lot of times families will all try to intervene. I mean, in some cases, even with their, with their children, you know, uh, that, well, you know, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be doing all this. You need to go out and have fun. You need to, you know, find some girls or, you know, go to the parties or, you know, I mean, if the family isn't a Christian and the, the child becomes one, I mean, it's like you're weird all of a sudden. And, and dedication to a cause like the Lord is hard for a lot of people to, to grasp. So, I mean, it's kind of a subcategory of that that you've got here. I mean, here it's that he's so thronged, he's just so occupied with it, but still it's the same mentality. It's kind of comforting to know Jesus was misunderstood by his family, because sometimes, you know, we are. Well, you think that's bad? Listen to what his enemies are saying. (laughs) You know, what are they saying about it? He's possessed by a demon. <laughs> isn't that an odd accusation against someone like Jesus, who never told a lie, who never committed a sin, you know, who, you know, I mean, he's just perfect, <laughs> possessed by, by the devil. That doesn't strike you as very likely. But they've got a special reason for saying that. What are they trying to explain? Or cast out the demons. Yes. Now, I think this was a stroke of genius on the part of the enemies. <laughs> because one of the biggest problems for them is to account for Jesus casting out the demons. I mean, that was something Jesus did a lot of. And wow, that's got the people convinced, you know, he's from the Lord. I mean, they're following him in huge numbers here. And so they've got to figure out something to say about that, some way to deal with that. Well, there are only two entities who would have the ability to cast out a demon. Right? God or Satan himself. And if it's not God, then it's Satan. He's doing it by the power of Satan. That's turning this great asset suddenly into a liability. Now every time Jesus casts out the oh, that he's in league with Satan again. This is perfect for them. This is, you know, something that was actually bolstering Jesus' uh, prestige. Suddenly is something to discredit him. I think they did a masterful job with this. Whoever, whoever came across that line, you know, was, uh, you know, a superb politician. You know, this is, this is a, a great job of throwing mud where it will really matter. And, and it's like every time that people make even unfounded accusations, you know, it's like throwing mud up against a wall. It may not stick, but it leaves a mark. And once people start thinking about this, even if they're not so sure it's true, every time they see Jesus cast out a demon, or every time they think about it, do you suppose they're right about that? Is he really in link with Satan? What do you think? I think that's why Jesus goes to such lengths to refute this accusation. Because a lot of times they said things about Jesus, he just ignored them. But this time... He really deals with this uh, more than he usually does, any kind of criticism. And he's really got three points to make. In 23 to 26, what's his point? 
something that's divided can't survive. So? If Satan is divided, then he can't survive. Yeah! You think Satan's going to fight himself? That's not very logical. You know, when Kyle was smaller, uh, just to tease him, uh, I used to grab his hand and make him go like this against himself. And then I'd say, Kyle, why are you hitting yourself? And he'd say, well, you're making me. You know, well, yeah. And we were just having fun with that. But, you know, what would you think if you saw some guy and he was just starting to beat himself up? You ever seen anybody do that? <laughs> you know, that's weird. I mean, somebody like that is not going to be successful at much of anything for long. <laughs> you know, if Satan has declared war on himself, you won't have to worry about him long. You know, civil war is uh, not a good thing. So it just doesn't make sense. Why would, what would Satan be doing, you know, fighting against his own demons? That's the first point. I think that's a pretty good point. His second point is 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. And it's kind of unusual to find Jesus giving uh, hints as to how to rob a house. <laughs> but on the, the surface, at least, that's what he's doing. And makes sense. I've not tried this, but I bet it would work. You know, if you want to rob the house of a strong man, what are you going to have to do first? Of the strong man. Yeah, you're going to have to put him out of commission somehow, because he's not going to let you rob his house until you deal with him. So, you tie him up, then you can take whatever you want to out of his house. So why does Jesus say that? Well, he's taking a demon out of people's body that they're being possessed, and so if he's going to take this demon out, the only way he can do that is to defeat Satan first. Yes, I think that's the right line of thinking. That the whole point of Jesus' mission was to defeat Satan. We could say that a little differently. The whole point of Jesus' mission was to take souls away from Satan's control. But how can he do that unless he ties Satan up first? <clears throat> I wonder if this isn't basically how he's seeing the casting out of demons. This is, this is tying Satan up so that he can then take his property away from him. This is a part of the process expect me, Jesus is saying, to be tying up Satan. Do you realize what I came to do? I came to plunder his property. I came to take these people away from him. So you know I'm going to have to tie him up. So I think he's showing that casting out demons fits in with the logical uh, progression of his goal, of his work, of his mission. Dealing with the strong man so that he can take the people away from him. Those are the easy parts. Do you have questions and comments through verse 27? Didn't we talk about that in Revelation? Like, referring back to... Yes, in Revelation 12, where uh, Satan... Um, well, and also Revelation 20, maybe, but Revelation 12, where Satan was kicked out of heaven and can't accuse the brethren before God anymore because Jesus shed his blood. So he has no authority. Jesus took those people away from Satan's control. Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Now, the last part, we're going to talk about a little bit more. I wouldn't necessarily do it this way if I was just teaching this to somebody who hadn't studied the Bible before. I probably wouldn't say a whole lot about 28 to 30. But since we're in a, a group like this, I think it would be helpful. Because, man, you know, people come to 28 to 30 and, you know, go spastic. And, you know, I think this is a very, very helpful passage, if we can understand it. 
Jesus goes one more step. Instead of just defending himself, Jesus warns them about the seriousness of the criticism they were leveling at him. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus goes from defending himself as being having a demon to accusing them as blas- of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and of not being able to have forgiveness. Now, to understand this better, it'll help us to go to Mark 12. I never really understood this until I, I said Mark 12, Matthew 12, sorry. Go to Matthew 12. I never really understood this until I really uh, looked at Matthew. Because Matthew gives a few details here that, that fill out the context. And uh, I don't, like I say, I don't usually do that when I'm studying Mark, but I think here it will help. Um, I want you to notice some things in Matthew 12 that are really important. The basic story we were looking at is Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. And the part we were just looking at is 31 and 32. And you'll see that this whole thing is the same story. It's parallel right down the line. But look before that context at verse 18. What Isaiah said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, that's an important reference to the Holy Spirit right there. God in Isaiah said that he would put his Holy Spirit on Jesus. Then look at 28. This is a part that's in Matthew that's not recorded in Mark. Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not only does Jesus have the Spirit upon him in general from Isaiah's prophecy, but Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit of God. When they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by Satan... They are not just blaspheming Jesus. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit through which Jesus is casting out the demons. Remember that in Mark 3.30, he said that because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, think about why this is so serious, and then we'll come back to Matthew and I'll show this. You look at Jesus in, in this historical context. He is doing nothing but good. He's preaching and teaching the truth. He's teaching the highest ethical standard man has ever known. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. He is living a pure, righteous, godly life. Nobody ever heard him say a bad word. Nobody ever saw him lose control of his temper. Nobody could successfully accuse him of substance abuse or of, you know, some, you know, indiscretion. I mean, Jesus is pure, he's godly, he's devout, he's prayerful, and he is fighting the devil tooth and toenail. And then you take these Pharisees and scribes who are bitter because Jesus has taken away their followers. And they are perverse enough to say, he's doing it by the power of Satan. Now, think about what that tells you about their hearts. You know, to see Jesus, to hear him, To know his character, to see him casting out demons, and to be so crazed with jealousy and hatred that you'd accuse him of doing it by the power of Satan. That's that's really bad. So Jesus says, in verse 31, 
of Matthew 12. Therefore I say to you, any sin of blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, against the Spirit, shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. He says that you speak these words against the Holy Spirit. You speak those words against the Holy Spirit by accusing Jesus who's casting out the demons by the Holy Spirit, of casting them out by Satan, <coughs> you will be forgiven. Now, you might say, but that doesn't seem right. I mean, these are just things they said. Why does that make much difference? I mean, they just said that. Well, look at verse 33. He follows this up by saying, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your word you will be justified, and by your word you will be condemned. Now look at verse 36. People misunderstand that sometimes. Like saying, oh, you can't ever say a careless word. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you will be judged by your careless words. Now, why will you be judged by your careless words? Exactly! It's not mere words. What you say is what's in your heart. The careless words are probably a better reflection of that than premeditated words, which you might artificially change. But when you just speak kind of off the cuff, it's what's inside. What's in the buckets, What's what was in the well. And that's what he's saying. You, in the mouth speaks out of what, that which fills the heart. So when they said, he cast out demons by Satan. It wasn't just words. It revealed their heart. And what did it show you about their heart? Perverse, evil, hard, insensitive, unrepentant. And Jesus saw it as unreachable. The point of this is that they showed their real state of character by accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan. And that was an unforgivable sin because you can't forgive a hard-hearted person. They can't repent. They can't be touched. They can't be moved to change. So really, this is unforgivable because they're unrepentable. They can't be reached. So that, that's what this is really all about. Jesus is telling them, you just, you just told on yourself. You just showed who you really are. And that you're the kind of people that, that they, they can't listen. You come on, look back for a minute at Mark 3. Mark 3 ends in verse 35, and, and we start Mark 4, and Mark 4 is really uh, very closely tied to what we've been looking at. Now, there's a lot we'll say about Mark 4 when we get there, but in verse 11, Jesus said, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Now, what he's really saying is there are people who they can see, but they never see. They hear, but they never hear. They are hard-hearted people who never will get it because they don't have a sensitive, receptive mind to the things the Lord says. All they can think about when they see Jesus casting out a demon is, what are we going to say to explain this one away? Oh, he's doing it by Satan's power. These are the guys that never came to Jesus. 
that never humbled themselves and never would. I think that's what he's saying. It's kind of ironic. Because, you know, they falsely accused Jesus later of blasphemy. The truth is, they were the blasphemers. I said, I talked too much at once. What questions and comments do you have? Does that make any sense? You said this, Gary, but he back in chapter three in, of Mark in verse five, he it, it talks about Jesus' response to their hardness of heart. Good point. Good point. Yes, they've already been showing themselves, <laughs> and this is kind of the icing on the cake. You know, I've heard various, some rather ingenious explanations of this. Uh, section on the on blossoming the Holy Spirit. But I would say that one of the things we constantly need to do look at the context. Once I saw Matthew twelve, boy the context just shows you what he's talking about. Every time you come to a hard passage and it's like, man, I just can't get this. Or it just doesn't seem right. Look at the context. And I'll say this. I've said this before, but, you know, this is one of my things I like to say. And that is, if you ever come to a passage and you, like, have an explanation of it, but you kind of have to tread real lightly and kind of soft pedal what it says to get your explanation to make sense, you don't understand the passage yet. If you understand it well, you'll be able to, to teach it giving full weight and force to everything it says. If you can't do that, if you have to kind of, you know, kind of hide part of it or just not really talk too much about that or kind of, you know, say that real quietly or whatever, you didn't get it still. You, now, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the explanation you're trying to avoid is right. But, but you haven't gotten it. If you can't just teach and preach it forcefully and firmly and outspokenly, then something's still missing. And, and often it's study the context more carefully. See how it fits in. Once you see that, we answered our own questions. I mean, you know, Matthew defines what this is. Mark does too with saying, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit, but that doesn't, that didn't give you all the details like Matthew does. Right, anything you want to say about all that? So why didn't he give us all the details? I guess maybe... In Mark... That is a good question. I don't really have the answer to that, other than that may not have been so much his purpose right there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for that. But that's that's usually why is that you know in in what Mark's trying to develop. I mean, he's really this is I guess in Mark to some extent. This is kind of like looking at the, the insiders, the apostles, the outsiders, Jesus' family, and the enemies. And then we're going to look at the outsiders again and the insiders. So he's not really elaborating that much on the section about the enemies. He's just kind of putting that in contrast with the, with the other two groups. We're going to see that in the next section. Anything else you want to say on any of that? All right, look at 31 to 35. And his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and, and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So they got there. They're outside. 
the crowd says, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus answers, Who are they, huh? <laughs> <laughs> What's his point? Definition change. Yes. My family now is who? Yes. Jesus sees his family as being those who serve God, not those he's related to by blood. The spiritual family taking priority over the physical family, and Jesus makes this point. He isn't necessarily treating his physical physical family the way they'd want to be treated. I mean, I'm assuming they sent word into Jesus that they were out there expecting what? Come out. Uh, yeah, like, uh, come out so we can take you back home. Jesus is not cooperating. <laughs> you know, uh, as far as I can tell, he doesn't even go out to meet them. He says, well, those those who are my family, my mother, and my brothers are those who do the will of God. There's several things that we should say about that. One is, and then we'll come back to the real point of this, but I said this already, but I want to say it again so you can really see it. You have essentially a chiasm here. Uh, an ABCBA. In 13 to 19, the apostles, they're insiders. 20 and 21, his family, they're outsiders. 22 to 30, the enemies. 31 and 32, it's his family standing outside. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And then 33 to 35, you've got the insiders, those who do the will of God. And to nail that down, look again at 4.11. To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Jesus is making this distinction. There are insiders, outsiders, and enemies. And it is significant that Jesus' family were outside. They're not enemies in the sense that they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But they're outside. So, what do we need to learn from that? We see here that Jesus defines his physical family as the outsiders, his spiritual family as those who are inside, who are with him, who are his true family. Now that's a different set of priorities and a different set of values than we often have. And I think we need to think more about this. You know, one of the things that worries me about Christians is that we can twist Christianity into something that's too comfortable for us. And something that seems very attractive to the world. What's going to attract worldly people? Well, family values and patriotism and success you know in in worldly kinds of terms and so sometimes what do we preach and what do we teach and what do we use to attract people well come to this church we're very pro-family we have all these family activities family-centered things now God says a lot of things about family And he has very specific instructions about husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children that we need to follow. God has a role for family. He created the family. But the goal of churches is not primarily promoting the family, but teaching what each family member ought to do and be. Some of what Jesus teaches is not very pro-family. 
you know, some of what he teaches is that uh, certain families shouldn't even be together because it's not, it's adultery according to God. That's not very pro-family. You know, he teaches us to put his will ahead of family and sometimes that means disobeying family or displeasing family or disappointing family. So our goal is not how can we have great families? Come to this church and we'll make sure you have wonderful, loving, caring, happy homes. That may be a byproduct if everybody in the family will do what God says. It will be a byproduct, but that's not the goal. We are loyal to the Lord above family. That's what Jesus shows. He's doing something here that's semi-rude to say... Who is, who is my family? Are those who do the will of my Father. So this would not be an ideal text for a Mother's Day sermon. And, uh, and, and, and maybe, you know, this is what we need more than that. We certainly need to do what God says in our families. But we need to see that Jesus didn't come to just make our life nice. Didn't come to just make us, you know, if you follow the Lord, then, you know, you'll, you'll be successful in your business, you'll have a nice family, you'll get along well with your neighbors, and everything will go smoothly. That's not what he's saying. You know, what Jesus calls us to is something that may be disruptive of the things that are calm and comfortable for us. Comments and questions? And that's hard to apply. What happens? And, you know, some of us are in good situations where our families love God too. But sometimes we aren't. And some people, a lot of people aren't. So what happens when, you know, oh, mom and dad, you know, they want this and that and the other thing that are immoral or are a conflict of interest with God's claims on us? But if I don't go along with that, they're going to get really mad at me. Now what do I do? Or maybe it's my children. Or maybe it's my husband or wife. Or maybe it's my brothers and sisters or whatever. But it, it's they expect one thing out of me and the Lord expects something else. This is a great text to really meditate on. And we've got to have the attitude Jesus had. Thoughts on chapter 3? It's kind of funny when you look at his response in verse 33 if, if they thought he had lost his senses before and then he is asking like who are these people? <laughs> you know, no, these people, it, you know, you, it could be read that way. I mean, I think you're right the way that it should be read but at the same time you hear that and you go, yes, he must be a little bit off, so. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> He's got far off. He doesn't even know who his family is anymore. They probably thought that after they heard what he said. <laughs> you know, he he really has gone off compared to where they think he ought to be. Other thoughts? All right, chapter four, verses one to nine. began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was there by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, and we understand this is just half this story. This is the uh, parable, and uh, we'll get the explanation a little bit later. What's a parable? Story. A story. With a spiritual meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I like that uh, definition, the earthly story with a heavenly meaning. 
the word parable means literally to lay down, lay something down beside something. So it's the idea you lay down the story beside the spiritual truth, and you can relate it. You can see the the parallels. That's the idea. So he tells you a story that you can see parallels to the spiritual application. Here, the story's about what? Sow and seed. Yeah. They didn't do it the way we do it. How did they sow seed? Broadcast method. Yes. Throw it out there. <laughs> you know, just spread it. Kind of the way my dad used to sow grass seed. He had a lawn and garden tractor and had a like a hopper on the back of it with a rheostat or whatever in it. It's just slang the... Slang the word slang? Slang? I don't know. Anybody know the past tense of slang? Uh, but it, it, it threw that stuff out there. <laughs> the seeds out there on the ground. I don't think I've ever tried to uh, sling a slug. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, today if we're planting something in the field, we use the planter that just puts it in the furrow, in the row. But they, they just broadcast the seeds. So it would fall in different places. And some of the places, well, would be better than others as far as growing a crop is concerned. And so he just started thinking about these different places where you'd sow the seed. Some of it was beside the road, maybe kind of like on uh, on the part where everybody would, would, you know, walk. Well, how is ground after everybody's walked on it? It resembles concrete. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. So what happens when you put seed on that? Yeah, nothing. So a bird comes along and eats it or whatever. It, it's not going to produce anything. Nothing's going to happen. Um, and then there's the rocky, the rocky ground that, that doesn't have much soil. This is where you've got like, think about it, if you had big rock and then a thin layer of topsoil over the rock and you plant the seed. Will it germinate? Will it grow? But what will happen to it? <laughs> yeah, it won't. Grow. It won't last. It'll be too hot and too dry for yes. it to last very long. Yes. You get a little dry spell, little heat, and it'll wither because you know it doesn't have what Root. deep roots. You don't see roots though. So that plant, as long as we're getting rain every couple of days, looks about as good as anything else. And it'll die real quick when it gets hot and dry. And you're thinking, what happened? It looks so good. Looked like it was doing just fine. Because the problem with that plant was the part you don't see underneath the ground. And when the roots are real shallow like that, they don't they don't pick up the moisture from down down lower. And then you had the seed among the thorns. Now, this is like weedy soil where the weeds grew up along with the plant. Um, in a case like that, will the plant germinate? Mm-hmm. Will it grow? Then does it suddenly die when the weeds spring up? <coughs> no. But what happens? It has to fight for every bit of nutrient against all the weeds. And sun and water and all that. We used to do that. You know, my dad grew sweet corn. And for a while he didn't use herbicide on it. And by the end of the season, I was fighting through ragweed taller than the corn. Now, you know, those corn plants were there. If you'd find them, they were there. <laughs> but half of them didn't have any ears on them. Have you ever seen an ear of corn that has one kernel here and one kernel there and one kernel over yonder? Uh, or maybe an ear that's filled out on one side and it's totally smooth on the other? And so forth and so forth. Oh, man, it was the rattiest, scrawniest, sickliest corn you've ever seen, but the plants were still there. And then, thankfully, some of the seed fell on good soil. And what's the uh, characteristic of good soil? What's the only difference in this story? The soil. The soil. No difference in the seed. No difference in the planter. The difference is in the soil. That's what made the difference. Now, that's the story itself. Do you have comments and questions on that?
And what is your time frame, John, on going to Columbus? When is their study? I don't even know. Are you going? From it's at 7, so okay. if you quit at 6.30, we will leave right then. Yeah, you, you wouldn't quite make it at 7, so... Yeah, we'll be a few minutes later. Okay. They don't always start at 7. Anymore. All right, all right. Well, let's do this next little section. We won't try to do the explanation of the parable, because that'll take a while. But, but 10 through 12 is uh, intriguing. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given a mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So the twelve want to know about the parables, and Jesus says that there is a difference that to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but the outsiders get everything in parables. Because they see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And so Jesus teaches in such a way that they never really get it. And it looks to me like Jesus is explaining why he teaches the way he does in a way that not everybody can get. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just, God didn't just like put everything in the Bible in an absolutely black and white, impossible to misunderstand terms? You know, he could have anticipated all the questions we would have, and he could have just said, you know, I do or I don't want you to baptize babies. And I do or I don't want you to do this. And I do or I don't want you to do that. And he just leaves it to no room for misunderstanding. Why didn't he just do it that way? Why didn't he just tell everybody just everything exactly like that and there'd be no questions? It's like falling in a rule book. There would be no passion to it. You're right. And Jesus teaches this way to divide people. Jesus purposely teaches in such a way that some people get it and some people don't. It tests their heart. It shows their character. Jesus didn't just make this so simple that everybody has got to see it even if they're wicked and perverse. He tests the heart. Um, and he divides people. He divided people in, in chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, by what he did, what he did divided people, and you saw the three categories. He also divides people by what he says. And he separates between this, the sensitive and moldable and the hard-hearted people who don't want to hear it. So the disciples and, and those who have the receptive heart, they'll understand, they'll appreciate it, they'll relate to it. And those who are outside, that are careless and indifferent, they'll not get it. I think Jesus is explaining why he teaches the way he is. I think the whole parable explains why people have different reactions. You see in chapter 3, 13 to 35, people do have different reactions. Here's the story that explains why. They have different reactions because they are different soils. Because they are different people. And Jesus teaches the way he does so that the good soil produces fruit and so that the others don't. Jesus' teaching divides men based upon their receptiveness, based upon their heart. It's a soil test. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. So when people reject the gospel, what does that mean? It's not the fault of the seed. It's not the fault of the seed, and it's not the fault of the sower. It's that they don't have a good heart. You know, they're not the good soil. That's the way Jesus looks at it. He consistently looks at rejection of the gospel as a revelation of the heart of the hearer. It's not a revelation of the ability of the teacher. Jesus had ability. That wasn't the issue. A lot of people didn't receive it. That could even have been a problem for the disciples. Why, why are so many people rejecting this? If it's, if it's really the truth, people wonder that sometimes today. Well, Jesus is explaining it. 
because there's all kinds of different soils that is hearts. There are people who are insiders and there are outsiders based upon their heart, based upon their soil, based upon their receptiveness. So in a sense, verses 11 and 12 are Jesus explaining in, in words what he explains in story before and after in the parable of the sower. So if somebody makes a statement, well, you can't really know what's in a person's heart. Not always true. Yes, I think it's not true. By your fruit, by their fruit, you will know. A person reveals his heart by what he says and what he does. And uh, you know when Jesus told the uh, apostles and disciples to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Because they have shown what kind of heart they've got. So often we want to divorce the heart from the actions. Well, I did badly, but I but you know, but I've got a good heart. That's not true. What I say and do comes from my heart. But we've got this whole thing that that you know, yeah, I know, I do really bad things and I say some really crummy stuff, but my heart's good. We're just deceiving ourselves. There is no such thing. You know, make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree evil and its fruit evil. You know, but you don't pick Greg's, uh, grapes off of thorns or figs off of thistles. That's what Jesus, Jesus very, he uses that analogy a lot. The tree and its fruit. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, does a tree have, I don't know what it has, cells, I guess. I don't know, does it have DNA, but whatever it has. You know, I don't know anything about that, obviously. But I can tell you if that's an apple tree or not. If you'll, if you'll bring me over here, you know, in, in fruit season, you know, I mean, that, that's a way to tell. That shows it. You tell me it's a cherry tree, but it's, it's growing those big red juicy things. It's not. I don't care what you tell me. I don't care how you analyze it. The fruit shows you the kind of tree it is. Our fruit, what we say and do, reveals our heart. That's a really handy thing to remember because we often deceive ourselves that way. We want to think we're better than what we are. You know, I said it, but it wasn't really me. <laughs> okay, who was it? <laughs> Ventriloquism. Let's say that three times fast. All right. Anything else? Well, then we'll just stop here and uh, we'll work on the explanation of the parable. You all know this one well, so it's not important that we uh, get that all together. And um, we'll do next Monday. And after next Monday, Mondays or Tuesdays. Mondays or Tuesdays. We'll do Tuesday from here on out. But more